Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's fascinating because we were, I was actually looking at Russians. We'd heard about them. They were supposedly the enemy. And then a guy went out onto the, the wing of their bridge and trained a loudspeaker on us and started playing dance music. Anyway, the cap, Mike, Mike Harris, the captain, who went on to become an admiral, he, he, he said, don't look at the Marriott. Just keep looking straight ahead. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Eric Thompson is the author of the book on Her Majesty's Nuclear Service. He is a career nuclear submarine officer who served from the first days of the Polaris missile boats until after the end of the Cold War. He joined the Navy in the last days of Empire, made his first sorties in World War II type submarines and went on to become the top engineer in charge of the Royal Navy's Operational Nuclear Submarine Force based at Faslane. In this vivid personal account of his submarine operations he reveals top secret submarine patrols, hush-hush scientific trials and a chat with British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. It's essentially a human story, both rich in drama and comedy, like the Russian spy trawler that played dance music at passing submarines. There was never a dull moment, but behind the lighter moments it was a deadly serious game, and Eric's chat reveals some of the secretive life of submarines and the men who served on them. Now, if you're enjoying the content and you want to continue hearing it, then I could do with some help to keep the podcast on the air. If you donate monthly via Patreon, you will get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps get new guests on the show. I'd like to thank some of our recent reviewers, and uh, I'm reasonably sure these aren't your real names, but anyway, here we go. Faye Dingaway, Sib1, Cold War Gav, and Romford Stew. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Eric Thompson to our Cold War conversation. I joined to um, defend my country, but the reason I had that in my mind, I think, was because 
I was born during the Second World War, 1943. My father's ship was sunk six weeks before I was born. And I think my mother wasn't sure whether he'd survived or not. So I was given his name and uh, he, uh, he did eventually turn up um, four or five months later with the help of the Greek resistance. And I then became Frederick Thompson Jr. when I was junior for the next 45 years. But the, the whole business of the Second World War is, is sort of ingrained deep down at the very bottom of my psyche. And of course, I grew up in the years following the, the, the Second World War. So I was fed as a boy on a diet of heroism and sacrifice and um, British bulldogs and all that sort of stuff. And, and I, I was sort of just, it was ingrained into my soul, you know, defending our country, defending our freedom. Right. So there was never any doubt in your mind you were going to join the Navy and not one of the other services? Uh, absolutely not. No, I mean, my, my first ambition, and I don't know what age I was, probably about age five, I think, was to be captain of the biggest battleship in the Royal Navy, which was HMS Vanguard at the time. Uh, the only waiver I had was just when I was leaving school. I had a fantastic um, school days. I had a fantastic childhood, actually. And I was so grateful to my teachers for so many things. Uh, and this was in a state um, grammar school, as you would call it in England, that I actually wondered whether I should um, be a teacher. Like all young idealists, I wanted to plough back my experience before I'd actually got any, but uh, the Navy won. So w when you joined the Navy, you are sent to Dartmouth Naval College. Can you describe your arrival and that first day at Dartmouth? Well, yes, I, I can. That too is engraved in my memory. I mean, I was um, like my call a wee boy from uh, Industrial Court Bridge to the east of Glasgow, and um, managing to get through the interviews, etc., and, and, and get to Britannia Royal Naval College, Dartmouth. You know where the Queen met Prince Philip. You, you know where the sons of um, the royal family went, etc. It all seemed terribly, terribly upmarket, uh, and one of my main anxieties was, um, you know, would, would I be a social misfit? In fact, that was never an issue, but it was in my mind, you know, as I sort of travelled down from Scotland. Um, but uh, one of the very nice things was, you know, Waterloo Station, there was uh, another hundred or so boys of my own age, or young men, I should say, were all 17 or 18. I was actually at the younger end. I was still 17 and a half. Some of them were uh, 18 and a half. But and you have this feeling that we're now going to join the Navy together. And here we are in, uh, that was 1961. Here we are now in 2020. So that's what, um, the fifth, it's nearly 60 years later. And we, we still have our reunions and get-togethers and exchange emails because of this, um, this amazing uh, sense of comradeship, you know, comrades in arms. About 140 of us who got onto the train at Paddington, all strangers, but all committing our lives to the Navy because um, we were, as people say, creme de la creme. I don't like that expression when it involves me, but we, the people who were going to Dartmouth were going to be career naval officers, i.e. we were in it for life, at least up until retirement age. And uh, so we were all totally committed to serving in the Royal Navy. And I was a singleton, you know, some of the other boys had been at 
boarding schools like Pangborn, which is a nautical college, and every year it sends you know a dozen or so of the pupils to a place like Dartmouth, and um, they can track their former pupils right up to being you know first sea lords and things like that. So I I, I, I was slightly anxious about um, whether I could fit in, but I never had a problem. In fact, when you arrive at at Dartmouth, I think you describe the uh, march up the hill. Yes. When you arrive at Kingsweir Station, which is on the east side of the River Dart, you take the ferry across to Dartmouth, and uh, 150 of us all piled out onto the um, the pavement outside where we were met by a naval gunnery instructor who uh, was not there to welcome us. He was there to make us form into a squad. Well, some of us had never actually marched in a squad before. I'd done a little bit of marching in the scouts, but the scouts are not really very good at marching. Um, so there's a very large squad of people. We're told to leave our bags in the pavement. They would be picked up and taken up to the college in a, in a lorry. And we were marched through the town and up the hill. And <laughs> there was sort of no speaking in the ranks. Um, a lot of um, people getting out of step and trying to get in step with each other. So I, I think we probably ended up with the uh, corporate locomotion of a centipede. Um, I remember I was... Um, I was a sort of hybrid between a young rock and roller and a young militarist. So I was I was wearing a sort of sports jacket and flannels with yellow socks and green suede shoes. Um, I, I don't think that was the, the normal dress code for Dartmouth. That's a great image you uh, you paint there. I'm I'm still getting over the uh, the green suede shoes, but uh, oh, very important uh, green suede shoes uh, <laughs> when you were going to the rock and roll discos of the 1950s and 60s. I can imagine. I can imagine. What what was Navy training like in the early 1960s? Well, for, for me, I absolutely loved it. It was exactly what I'd been hoping for. Um, you, you know, I went to a, a, a day school at Coatbridge High School, so I hadn't been locked up in a boarding school. So I was very happy to embrace, uh, you know, the, the militaristic uh, establishment aspect. Some of my chums who'd been to boarding school hated it because they, they you know, age 18, they, they were hoping they'd have some freedom when they got out of school. But I was also an outdoor type. Um, you know, I was in the habit of taking my um, scout patrol off on hikes. Um, I did a lot of cycling around Scotland. Uh, so all the physical side, side of it was, was I took it in my stride. I, I was also a, a good cross-country runner, so I went straight into the Dartmouth team. I was also a good footballer, and I was in the team for that as well. So... I mean, Dartmouth absolutely lived up to all my dreams and expectations of joining the Navy. Right, right. And then when when did you graduate from there? Uh, summer 1962. That was after two terms in the college and one term in the training squadron, which was um, probably the hardest bit of the lot. That was at sea, of course. Why, why was that particularly hard? Well, we were treated... And this was an intention of the training that young cadet officers should really have their noses rubbed in the dirt, so to speak. Uh, We were chased from sunrise to sunset and up through the night. We had to keep journals. We slept in hammocks. There never seemed to be enough food for us. We had to scrub the decks with wire wool, learn to launch sea boats. I don't know what our um, average daily sleep quota was, but it was probably about four hours or something. So we were 
run ragged and treated really like the lowest of the low. Everyone could shout at us and order us, order us about. And the object of the exercise was to teach us what it's actually like to be a sailor, having to do these things as your job. In addition to that, of course, we, we were doing navigational practice uh, on the watch and all the other naval things and lowering the sea boat, which is quite a challenge. I mean, you're talking about a one-ton boat, which is in the training squadron ships, you lowered by hand using pulley blocks, of course, but uh, it, it's a very significant thing. And it's very easy to have uh, accidents and injuries. When when you graduated, what, what happened next? Were you assigned to a, a boat or a ship? Yeah, um, we all went to different ships around the mighty British fleet, which in those days was was massive compared with today, although it shrunk a lot since the war. But I, I got a destroyer in the Far East fleet. Now, think of that. We had a fleet based in the Far East, based in Singapore. Uh, and I went out in a destroyer called... HMS Barossa is a converted battle class destroyer, converted to become a radar picket. So we had um, what used to be called a bedstead radar, a massive great radar antennae. Uh, and our role would be to be out in front of the carrier battle group, um, you know, providing early air, air warning. I suppose a slightly uh, vulnerable position, but uh, one never thought about that as a sort of 19-year-old midshipman. Uh, we had um, HMS Hermes was our main carrier out there. We had Bulwark, which was a commando carrier, although she was mainly up Persian Gulf way. Uh, um, we had a squadron of destroyers, a squadron of submarines, and we had um, a couple of cruisers based on uh, Singapore Naval Base. So we did that for a year, and I spent uh, a month on board Hermes for aircraft carrier experience. My other 11 months were um, patrolling around the Borneo area, at which time uh, we were involved in what was called the Borneo Confrontation, which was a kind of mini war with Indonesia, which was never declared to be a war. But uh, people were being killed, not in large numbers, fortunately, but the Indonesians who populated half of uh, Borneo were quite keen to take over the whole of Borneo. So um, we did that for a year, and then um, we had a fleet board and if we passed that, that allowed us to become commissioned officers. So by the summer of 1963, I was commissioned. And that really meant I was an officer till either I retired or I was court-martialed and kicked out. <laughs> and what, what rank was that then you were, you were, you were at as an officer? I was an act. Well, as a midshipman uh, for the for the year, and at the end of my year as a midshipman, uh, I became an acting sub-lieutenant, and at that stage went to the Royal Naval Engineering College to um, study for an engineering degree. Right, right. And and how did you end up on submarines? Well, really as a matter of schoolboy forward thinking, I read a lot of books when I was growing up about the war. I was very conscious of the U-boat threat to Britain in, in, in the Battle of the Atlantic. I was conscious of the heroism of our own submarines, which never really got publicity. I mean, for security reasons, the exploits of our submarines in the Second World War was never made public. But um, 
don't know, I think we lost, we won something like five Victoria Crosses and we lost the entire strength of the flotilla at the start of the war. By the end of the war, although obviously we were making up, building new submarines and recruiting new people, we lost almost 4,000 submariners. Anyway, that, that was all very inspiring, but more importantly, with the advent of uh, USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, which came into service uh, when I was at, at secondary school, th this was a game-changer because the diesel submarines, uh, which um, we'd used in the Second World War, were vulnerable. They had to come up to surface to charge their batteries. And even when snorting was developed, that's charging your batteries, running your diesel using a snorkel mast, basically, you're still vulnerable. But the nuclear submarine could actually stay submerged, you know, in perpetuity almost. Uh, it could sail around the whole world without ever surfacing. And it could go uh, as fast or faster than surface ships. And it could do that in all weathers, which the surface ships couldn't do. So suddenly, here was something which, you know, if we reran the Battle of the Atlantic with two or three nuclear submarines, he could just go and mop up the convoys, unlike, um, you know, which the U-boats couldn't really do, although they obviously sank a lot of our ships. So I, it occurred to me that the best way of catching a submarine is another submarine. I, during the Second World War, anti-submarine forces were always, always surface-based. Now, one of the problems with a surface ship trying to find a submarine is the sonar listening devices on the keel or the hull of a surface ship suffer from all the noises of, um, you know, being in the water, the splashing, the waves, the ship pitching up and down. And also the sea is not homogeneous, so you do get uh, stratification. You get layers, particularly in hotter climates where you get a, a warm surface layer, and that bends sonar rays, so surface ships looking for submarines. Say, and I've I witnessed this out in, in the Far East. You, know, you can have a submarine which ducks underneath the hot surface layer, and the surface ship sonar can't see it. It's just not there. It's, it's below the layer. And uh, so what was required, really, was a submarine hunter, which would actually go below the layer to where the enemy submarine was, and that was clearly what a nuclear submarine could do. And the nuclear submarines coming in had these massive sonar systems, which a, a, a diesel-driven submarine really couldn't support. So I thought that the way to deal with any future submarine threat to Great Britain was to be in a hunter-killer submarine, which is what um, the Americans call attack boats. We call them hunter-killer submarines although we now call them SSNs, but hunter-killer is actually a very good description. Uh, then uh, Nautilus, still while I was at school, travelled from the Pacific through to the Atlantic by passing underneath the Arctic ice cap. That was sensational at the time. I mean, I don't think anyone other than the people in the top secret need to know of the United States Navy had even considered it possible to um, to travel under the ice cap from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And that opened up a whole new uh, concept of you know, submarines operating under the ice. And ultimately, by the end of the Cold War, that's what the Soviet Navy was doing with its big um, 
hunt for Red October type uh, Typhoon class submarines. They were designed to actually patrol under the ice cap, and if they got the the message to to launch their missiles against the West, particularly against North America, they could do it from under the ice cap. Uh, but that wasn't till uh, the 1980s, really, late 1980s. Uh, then, of course, the Americans brought out the USS George Washington, which was the first nuclear-powered submarine which could actually launch intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. Um, and the generation of missiles for them was called the Polaris missile. And that, too, was not just a game-changer. That was a complete revolution in warfare because that took the submarine from being what was a battlefield weapon. It took it right up to the top, to the number one priority slot in, in, in the national defense priorities, because it would be from, certainly for Britain, from 1968 onwards, it would be nuclear-powered submarines which were carrying our strategic nuclear deterrent. And they've been doing that now for over 50 years. It's quite an, an incredible achievement. And I have no doubt that the strategic nuclear deterrent is why we never had a third world war. And that to me is about the greatest service one can provide to humanity. Uh, anyway, in answer to your question, uh, that, that, those are the reasons why I thought submarines uh, were the right place to go in the Navy. Because unknown to me, I, I was far too um, ignorant of how the Navy worked as a schoolboy, but having made that choice, I found myself going into the engineering branch of the Navy. That was because I'd, my eyesight wasn't good enough to fly a fast jet or be captain of a ship. I chose engineering really by default. But there I was going to the Naval Engineering College. At the time in history when the, the Royal Navy and indeed the world's navies were massively expanding their submarine forces, all to be nuclear-powered, which demands, of course, volumes of qualified um, nuclear engineers. So I happened to buy, sort of a way, good judgment and a bit of good luck. I, I chose a branch which was expanding, and it expanded really right up till the end of the Cold War. Uh, and so, if you like, I, I was on a good track uh, from a career point of view, although it was actually um, – I never thought about career ambitions. I just wanted to join the Navy. Yeah, but you you start off on uh, a more humble boat than a, a hunter killer, don't you? You start off on HMS Otter. Yeah. And how challenging was it on that first boat? For me, it was very challenging, but not for the reasons I had feared. My big anxiety about going off to be the electrical engineer officer of a diesel electric submarine was my competence technically. In fact, because electrical engineers were a relatively new breed to submarines, and I think the first ones only came in about five years ahead of me because they weren't really needed in the old submarines. Uh, you know, a, a technician could handle the, the electrical machinery. So I was uh, electrical engineers of my generation in some ways were regarded as a mixture of um, the wardroom joke and irrelevance and as an extra watchkeeper. And I had expected to be treated as a head of department 
uh, in fact, I was treated more like just uh, a semi-competent watch-keeping extra hand. And I find that quite difficult. One of the problems for me was, of course, the, the captain and the executive officer who both served, you know, they were obviously senior to me. They'd served in submarines which didn't have electrical officers. And so I, I didn't have a very sympathetic handling uh, from them. And I, I didn't get on with the other engineers. So it actually came down to uh, interpersonal relationships between you know, men in, who were locked up together in a very small space for relatively long periods. Uh, I have to say that was, that was quite stressful. I mean, I think some people nowadays would call it bullying, although I would never um, condescend to, to, to say that I was being bullied. I mean, it's up to... I saw myself as having to fight against bullies. So to me, it was a challenge. I wasn't going to let the bastards grind me down, so to speak. But it was an unhappy time. And uh, in the end, I asked, I said to the captain, I'd like to leave this submarine, thinking I would go to another one uh, and try again. Uh, and that indeed did happen, although in effect, this, the captain sacked me because he didn't want an officer who didn't want to be with him. Fair enough. And so I went to another submarine called HMS Andrew, which was actually um, wartime designed. And it was a different Navy. I mean, you'd think two submarines might be very similar, but they're not. Each and every submarine has its own personality, which, of course, is that created by the combination of the personalities on board. So I, I went from having a fairly stressful time to a very happy time. And I had two wonderful commanding officers, one of whom eventually went on to be to, to be fourth sea lord and, and, and he got a knighthood. The other one, who was the greatest character I've ever served with, unfortunately was too great a character and he uh, left early and wasn't promoted beyond the level he was at when I served under him. But they were both great, uh, great examples to me as how to lead men, whereas my first submarine for me was a very good example of how not to lead and encourage people like me. So uh, my, my career kind of looped up uh, thereafter. Yeah, you describe very well the uh, challenges that you had uh, on HMS Otter in, in the book. And it, it, it's a great insight into the different styles of leadership that the submarine captains had at the time, because you you talk very fondly of Mike Tuey, who I think was your your CO on HMS Andrew. Can you can you tell me a, an anecdote or two about Mike? Well, <laughs> have you got all day? <laughs> a classic examples when we did what we call clockwork mouse running because we were an old World War Two design submarine. We were really not fit for doing very much in the Cold War, but we were used a lot for training purposes, training the anti-submarine forces. So we spent a lot of time up in the Portland exercise areas while frigates of all the NATO navies practiced uh, sinking us. Uh, we were usually in the outer area, so it was out in the middle of the channel. Now, most uh, sensible submarine commanding officers, at the end of the day, these exercises, they would probably choose to have a quiet night at sea. Not Mike Tui. He would have us hammer back into Portland Harbour, which is probably about an hour and a half on the surface. He'd open the bar... Because I'm afraid he did like he did like his whiskey, and and we couldn't get to bed until he'd finished his whiskey, and then he would take a bottle of whiskey up 
into one of the sailors' messes and share it with them. Now, I mean, that's completely irregular, having commanding officer going in amongst the sailors in their sort of mess deck, but they, the, the troops loved it. On another occasion, I was duty officer in, in this French town of Bayonne. We were on a visit there, and Bayonne's Basque country, and Tui, who had style, he got himself a Basque beret and a, a maquila, which is the, um, the, the stave with the point that uh, shepherds use in the Pyrenees. And he'd been strutting around in this. And he, I, I was duty that, this particular night, and, and Mike arrived back on board and an A-boat had a tiny little wardroom. I mean, it's like a very, like a kitchen table, about the size of a large card table, and the bunks are just round all three sides of it with a little desk on the fourth side. And, and, and the captain came in and, and, and got his passport out and he got some sealing wax out of the desk drawer and a candle. And he started sort of going around burning the edges of his passport and then melting wax onto it. And he got a ship stamp and stamped it. And I said, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? And he said, they won't let me into the casino because my passport's out of date. So um, I'm just um, bringing my passport in date. <laughs> Another thing he, he did there, when we were on our way to Bayonne, we were due to um, meet up with HMS Olympus, which was an O-class diesel submarine. The two, the two of us were going in together. And so there was a rendezvous off the French coast. Uh, and we were approaching dived, and we could see Olympus up there on the surface kind of waiting for us. So I happened to be on dived watch. and. Uh, I, I, I said, I'll, I'll call, said to the captain, I'll call Olympus up. And I said in my schoolboy French, Submarine anglais, submarine anglais, ici Bayon, ici Bayon, over. <laughs> to which I got the reply, um, Bayon, wait. They sort of lingu linguistically challenged Brits couldn't actually reply in French. So I tried again and said, uh, Submarine anglais, submarine anglais, ici Bayon, ici Bayon. Uh, uh, Répondez-vous, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> Over. And uh, I could see it through the periscope that you know, there was activity on the bridge of Olympus, and we were coming up almost alongside her, probably only a couple of hundred yards to one side of her, and we heard the captain of Olympus's voice coming on, who said, uh, uh, Bayon, Bayon, uh, Parlez-vous anglais? At which point uh, Mike reckons uh, it's time to, to, to show us. So he said, right, surface an emergency. And we just uh, blew all tanks and we came careering up out of the Ogin um, right alongside Olympus. But you know, these are very small stories, but it was just the general flavor of. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle the way things, the way Mike Tui did things. He did once, um, it was after I had left, he wasn't happy with the berth he'd been given when he came up to Faz Lane. 
and in an argument with the people who allocate births, he felt that we were just being treated as, you know, a lump of old scrap. So he, he decided to take the submarine away with just the duty watch without permission. And he sailed it down the Clyde to an, a NATO fueling jetty down there and tied up there. And uh, well, that things like that would have cost him his promotion, but he really didn't give a toss. But, uh, you know, for, for a captain to take his submarine to sea with just the duty watch without any authorization is, I mean, he's the sort of guy you go to war with because he's, you know, complete character. Yeah, yeah. No, that, those are great, great, great stories. I think you, you tell an interesting um, detail, which I don't think people necessarily think about during a uh, submarine versus submarine exercise where uh, you're with HMS Oracle, I think, and they have a toilet blockage. Uh, yes. I think that is probably the greatest fear in most submariners' minds. Uh, most systems, you've got uh, a port and starboard option, uh, but with the sewage system, there's only one overboard hull valve, which, without wishing to be vulgar, is the submarine's anus. And if that gets blocked, well, you're instantly into um, corporate constipation. And if you have a... Um, sort of 100 or so men on board. For, for Oracle, it would have been about 75 men. But it happened in revenge where we had 150 men. Um, you, you cannot actually get rid of your sewage. Uh, it's actually it's a very serious problem. And um, Oracle, bless the cotton socks, um, solved this by using waste paper baskets and uh, on Her Majesty's service envelopes for people to deposit their um, droppings in. And they were taken to what's called the gash gun, which is a little torpedo about a foot in diameter, a torpedo tube, which pointed downwards. And that's how we um, got rid of our, I mean, it's like ship's dustbin, so to speak. So uh, when a man needed to relieve himself, um, he had to... um, use a wastepaper basket, an envelope, and go to the dustbin. That's an image that's going to stay with our listeners for some time, Eric, I think. (laughs) Um, So you're then uh, posted to HMS Osiris, which is a special fit submarine. But I I think one of the interesting stories that you had in, in your book was your father visiting for the day. Can you just describe that because obviously he he served in the navy during World War Two. Yes, well, well, Dad had been he was a banker in peacetime. He was only in the navy uh, as a volunteer for his hostilities only. But he was also a part time pianist in a, in a, a dance band. And at that at his time, the, the navy were just developing a thing called ASDIC, which is anti submarine detection indicator equipment. That's what ASDIC stands for. We now call it sonar. <clears throat> but it um, transmitted pings, and uh, if there was a submarine in the line of the ping, you got a um, ping back. But the ping back would have a slightly different frequency depending on whether you were closing the submarine or um, opening out from it. So you get ping, ping, or ping, bong. And uh, they recruited musicians um, to fill fulfill that task because musicians had uh, good ears for pitch. So Dad spent uh, the war in, in an anti-submarine role, and there he was uh, joining us uh, down in Rothsey while we did commanding officers' training. And we were the training was um, 
for the, the trainee commanding officers to attack surface warships. So these surface warships are herring around at high speed with uh, authority to try and run down the submarine if it saw the periscope. I mean, it was a game of uh, serious chicken. Uh, the safety factor was that the submarine has two periscopes and the teacher, as he was called, would sit on the um, the main the, the, the search periscope um, as a safety number and order the submarine to go deep if the trainee captain let the um, destroyer or frigate get too close. So Dad was kind of um, seeing what it was like from the other end of the ping. And, of course, he was terribly proud of me as his son being in the Navy, but uh, it was just I thought it was... a an interesting um, bolt fast. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a really, really interesting uh, story. So he was there while there was a parisher course going yes. on. Wow. Wow. He's only out for the day. Yeah, but even so, that's, that's really, that's no, it's, it's really interesting and it must have been quite enlightening for him being, yeah, the, the other side of the periscope, as you say. So... There, there's a couple of things that you're uh, you're doing with uh, Osiris. You're, you're testing out various pieces of equipment, and one of the ones I found interesting was the was the towed array, uh, which were, it sounds like it was quite an early version. But you had some problems with the cabling. Yeah, so it was a very early version. I think it was actually even earlier than a prototype. It was, uh, I, I think, it was. Commercial one that we'd bought, or we might have bought it from the Americans. I don't know, but it wasn't um, an Admiralty pattern thing. And this consisted; it was about a kilometre long length of. Um, when I say wire, it was like, rather like telephone wires. There was something like twenty-six cables in this wire, plus the uh, strength uh, cable, which was kind of armour coated. And at the end of it, we were towing an array of uh, listening devices. So when I say an array, that means there are equal distances in a long, in a long line. And by having that, you can, you can build up um, wave patterns so you can get direction of uh, any, anything you pick up. And th this was a major technological breakthrough in the Cold War. Um, the advantages of this towed array thing were twofold. One was that it took your listening devices off the hull of the submarine, so you were taking away the self-noise, which is a factor. Um, and in, the, in an underwater warfare, it's all about sound, and if you like, it's a, it's a sound equation. If, if you make a lot of self-noise, you reduce your ability to hear a target. If you make a lot of radiated noise, you increase your risk of being heard by the target. So... Uh, it's not just a question of buying the best sonar set. You want to do that, of course, but you also need to make sure that your own submarine isn't drowning out your, your listening device. Uh, and similarly, you want to make sure that your submarine's not radiating a lot of noise, which uh, another submarine could hear. So it's, it's quite complex in that sense. So the beauty of the Tour de Ray was it, it took you out into very silent listening conditions. Hand in hand with that came digital technology and uh, things called um, frequency analyzers. So, whereas if you're um, if you're sitting in a concert hall listening to a symphony orchestra, for example, you you get the noise of all the instruments from the drums to the pianos to the violins, blah blah, and that would make it difficult to hear the air conditioning fans in the ceiling. 
But with a digital analyzer, you can break down all this cacophony of noise from the symphony orchestra into its constituent frequency components. And then in that, you will find the constituent frequency of the air conditioning fan motor. So you can pick the air conditioning fan out from the middle of a symphony orchestra, just like that. And that, in naval submarine warfare terms, meant you could pick out something like um, a main fuel pump or something on another submarine and ignore the enormous amount of noise that is in the sea from for other reasons. I mean, it's not just the noise of other ships and submarines. There's all the biological noises. For example, um, sh- sh- shrimp snapping shrimp sound like chips frying on the um, loudspeakers, and dolphins go around chattering the whole time. Uh, carpenter fish are hammering on your um, hull-mounted hydrophones like someone's hammering in your eardrums. So th- th- this um, the combination of the tone array listening devices and the narrowband frequency analyzers changed um, detection ranges from, you know, five to 10,000 yards to, you know, 100 miles or longer, depending on how noisy the um, target you're listening for. This was experimental, and we had no way of connecting these 26 cables coming from the array into the inside of the submarine. So we had to split them up into bunches and use uh, things like navigation light wiring to um, get the electrical signals inside the submarine. But every time we, we dived, the thing flooded and put a full earth on our whole submarine's electrical system, so we had to surface. And this happened twice, and the captain was getting a bit fed up because we were running out of time to complete this trial. And the other submarine, which was to be our target, was getting absolutely fed up because it had been lolling about on the Atlantic swell for two days. And the captain said to me, Eric, can you do something about this? So um, I said to the scientists who were running the trial that um, it's quite clear that this plug-in socket arrangement you've got for connecting up your Toad array is is not waterproof, so let let's cut it out altogether and let's just um, replace it with straight wire to wire soldered connections, each individual one being watertight. So to do that, we had to pull you know the ends of the cables from outside the submarine down the conning tower into the control room where my uh, electrical artificer sat with a soldering iron and a hairdryer individually joining up 26 cables and we put the whole lot inside a length of rubber hose which we pre-positioned and then we filled that up with um, engine oil and stuffed the ends with with wax sealant so we made this watertight connection and um, I, I went and reported to the captain that we were ready to go and I looked up and we'd passed one of the wires through the ladder the rungs of the conning tower ladder which meant we had to dismantle all and do it again, but we didn't have time for that. So my uh, engineer buddy, who was responsible for the ladders, the ladders being mechanical things, said, don't worry, Eric, uh, I'll, saw, I'll saw the ladder in half, which he did. So we, we ended up with only half a conning tower ladder, which meant to get up the conning tower thereafter, you had to stand on another man's shoulders to get up into it. And that was the way we were for the next uh, two or three weeks till we got back to Faz Lane and managed to weld up the ladders. 
But the trial was successful, brilliantly successful, and uh, Toda Race became the main sonar system for submarines um, for the rest of the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's really interesting. The sort of you know the genesis of the of the Toad Array and how it was first tested within the, within the Royal Navy, particularly the hairdryer and the soldering iron and the uh, sawing off of it the ladder. It was so Keith Robinson. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Now the book has got is full of really interesting stories throughout Eric's career, but um, I've heard this with other submariners about the Malinhead AGI, which was a, a Soviet spy trawler. AGI, I believe, stands for Acoustic Intelligence Gatherer. Yeah, that's correct. It, it was interesting your description because um, you come up really close to this ship, don't you? But you have another mission to. Uh, investigate it further don't you yes um we were aware of this thing there i mean there was uh, there was one of them parked between the mullikintyre and the north of uh, north of ireland the, the antrim coast throughout the cold war uh, we knew that their role was to monitor um, british and american submarines going in and out of the clyde uh, we assumed, obviously, they would be signalling their intelligence-gathering reports to Moscow. Uh, and also, we presumed that these reports would be being fed to um, a Soviet submarine or submarines, which we always suspected would be lurking out in the Western approaches in the hope of uh, latching on to a departing uh, NATO submarine and, and in the hope of following it to its patrol area so that they would know where our missile submarines were actually hiding. Uh, so we were tasked to, to, to go out. This was an Osiris, which is a diesel-electric submarine. We, we were tasked to go out and investigate what this AGI had underneath. We knew what it had on top. It was festooned with um, radio aerials and things. I mean, there's, there's no way you could mistake it for a trawler because it didn't have any fishing equipment. And so we did. We, we we headed out, and sure enough, we were on the surface. And sure enough, there it was, sitting on the surface, just passing the time of day. And when it saw us approaching, it got underway, and it came heading over towards us. I, I happened to be the officer watch on the bridge at the time. I called the captain, and, and, and he came up. And we watched the AGI coming uh, towards us at its maximum speed, and we were heading towards it at our maximum speed. I came down our starboard side, went round the stern and came up on our port side about 100 yards off us. And it was fascinating because we were, I was actually looking at Russians. We'd heard about them. They were supposedly the enemy. And there, there they were, about probably about 20 or 30 of them on the upper deck, including with females, which I have to say were, were not bathing duties. They were all wearing overalls and big sort of industrial aprons and things. But they'd come to look, come up to look at us and we were looking at them. And then a guy went out onto the uh, the wing of their bridge and trained a loudspeaker on us and started playing dance music, which I thought was fantastic. And I couldn't decide whether they were trying to demonstrate Soviet cool. But, I mean, this was um, what I would call Victor Sylvester-style strict tempo dance music, the sort of stuff my parents danced to. We were in the rock and roll era by this stage. In fact, we were beyond the rock and roll era by that stage. And so I couldn't decide whether the Russians were just out of date um, or, or what, or whether they are trying to be funny or whether they were 
trying to annoy us. But uh, anyway, the cap Mike, Mike Harris, the captain who went on to become an admiral, he, he, he said, don't look at the Marriott, just keep looking straight ahead. So we just kind of looked straight ahead and we, we, we could go faster than them. So we were, we were slowly pulling away from them and uh, listening to this dance music. And then we then we, we went out over the horizon, see, having located him, and we dived. And then we came back to to do what we call an underrun because we wanted to find out what he had underneath. And that was quite difficult to see. The first time we got a, a, a quite good look. I mean, only, only the captain got to see it because he was on the periscope. But uh, it was a dynamic situation, so we went round for a second uh, underrun. Uh, and I think he twigged that we were underneath him by that stage, uh, and he started to speed up, and that became very difficult then to kind of um, keep station on him uh, underwater. Well, he had uh, sonar listening devices. I say in the book that he had a torpedo tube. We were never actually completely convinced about that, but after the Cold War ended, one of these AGIs was spotted in a dry dock in Indonesia, and it indeed did have a, a torpedo tube, which technically would have made it a warship. So an interesting little uh, close encounter. Eric, one one of the things that I really liked about the book was how much you illustrate the importance of family to you and the importance of your wife in supporting you. And, you know, some of the particular career choices you made because you know, you didn't want to create too much up, upheaval from your family. And that sort of echoed throughout the book. You met Kate, I think, quite early on in your naval career. Yes, I, I did. I met Kate uh, in my uh, final year at Engineering College in Plymouth, I mean, before I went into submarines. I actually met her on the train going up on a skiing course in Abbey Moor, and it happened she was going to the same Outward Bound School for the same skiing course, so you could say it was kind of almost an act of God or written in the scriptures or whatever. But she came from very close to where I'd grown up, and we I'd been in the Navy for about four years by that stage, and I, I just we, I found a, a woman of my own kind, so to speak, and we just hit it off immediately, and uh, and we stayed in love with each other f- um, for 40 years until she was taken from me with breast cancer. Uh, so I, I, owned, I had a very simple approach to life. I had two main pillars of my life. One was the Navy, another was my wife. Of course, the latter expanded into having a family, uh, etc. But I was always conscious that in the final analysis, my wife and children came first, unless we were at war, but we weren't at war. And so, I, I mean, Kate was very, very tolerant. She didn't she didn't choose to join the Navy. She married me. I happened to be in the Navy, but she was entitled to a life of her own as well. Uh, so when when uh, I did the nuclear course at Greenwich, we'd, we'd had about 13 moves of house over about three or four years. And I'd moved the family down to, to, to Greenwich for the course. And at the end of the course, I went away off to the north of Scotland to Dunray to the um, atom, UK Atomic Energy Place up there to do um, practical nuclear training. And Kate came back to our house up at Faz Lane. And then I was appointed to HMS Conqueror, which was a hunter-killer and nuclear-powered submarine. And I came back from that, and I was reappointed to HMS Courageous, a sister ship. But she was about to go into refit in Chatham, which is back down in the south of England. And she would be in refit for at least two years. 
And I would be kind of become, a, if you like, a dockyard manager for two years. And it wasn't really why I joined the Navy. And it meant another move for Kate and the, and the, the family. And I just came to the conclusion that I'm, I'm fighting an impossible war here. I can't keep the family together and pursue a naval career. So I, I decided that it was time to um, seek fresh pastures. And uh, to cut a long story short, um, I was asked if I would accept an appointment in one of our Polaris missile submarines, which was based at Faslane, which would allow me to keep the family together. And, and so I said yes to that and stayed on in the Navy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. And it's an important area to to note is the, you know, the impact on, on your loved ones. I think it is very important because um, the majority of, of um, submariners were, were married. Uh, and their wives had a very difficult lifestyle. I mean, I discovered this when I became a widower. I'd suddenly to look after myself. Children had left home by then, but leaving your wife behind, in my case, I was leaving um, Kate behind with two young children, a large dog, an Alsatian dog, and um, and she had a part-time job as a teacher. That, that's that's an awful lot to handle on your own. And, and Kate was a very capable uh, graduate a woman in her mid-twenties by that stage. Some of the sailors' wives, you know, a young sailor aged 18, 19, getting married and bringing up his 17, 18, 19-year-old wife from Birmingham somewhere to live at Faz Lane, where she's got no family, no friends. And then he disappears for two months. It's very, very demanding on the wives, but they're, they're never... They don't get the credit for it. They're just assumed to be an appendage to the bloke. Yeah, yeah. No, that that that's really interesting, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, you you were involved in the Mark Twenty Four torpedo trials. Is that the Tiger Fish? The, the Mark Twenty Four had uh, failed its acceptance trials, so it was going to be cancelled. And then they did the old government trick of. Um, giving it a, a second chance under a new label. So they called it Tigerfish. But uh, I understand it had some rather serious teething problems. Uh, you mentioned in the book about uh, a trial where one ends up chasing the ferry to Aaron and another one where it attacked its own boat, HMS Ocelot. Can you just give me a bit more detail into those incidents? Well, the, the Tigerfish was a very, very competent torpedoes you know it was really um, state of the art probably the most advanced torpedo in the world at the time it did suffer from unreliability problems mainly on the sort of nuts and bolts side rather than the high tech side for example it was a guided torpedo so wire guided a lot of people who don't know about submarines find that hard to believe but we, we would fire a wire guided torpedo and it it pays out wire as it travels through the water. The wire itself is not moving. It's coming off a reel rather like um, a bobbin. So the wire itself stays static in the water, but from that 10,000 yards of wire. So we were controlling a torpedo that was five miles away, um, trying to guide it into con sonar contact with the target. The problem was the wire frequently broke in the early days, which left you with a homing torpedo, which would home on whatever it wanted to. And we had no more control over it. 
And in one case, it picked up the noise of the, when we were doing trials in the, the Clyde estuary, it picked up the noise of the uh, Aran ferry and it went off after that. Fortunately, it ran out of battery before it reached the um, ferry and the ferry steamed on blissfully unaware that it had been under attack. On another occasion, the torpedo, it, 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 if it can't find anything, you kind of, if it hears a noise, it'll turn around and, and, and go after that. So you can find a torpedo which actually turns back towards the submarine and then it might pick up the submarine's noise. Or it, it, you can get a rudder jam and it just goes around in a circle. Uh, this happened on one occasion. The torpedo went around in a circle and actually came back and speared the firing submarine through what we used to call the duck's arse, which was the stern of the diesel submarine. And it, uh, it jammed the steering gear, so um, Ocelot had to be towed backwards back up to Faz Lane. And another torpedo, um, it suffered from, at the end of the run, it's supposed to switch off and just... It drops some, some, some lead weight so it becomes buoyant and it bobs up to the surface. But this one didn't stop when it was meant to stop, and it went charging up the beach in the island of Butte and landed in the local golf course, which <laughs> scared the pants <laughs> off some of the golfers. Oh, dear. Brilliant. I mean, these things travel about 40 miles an hour, so a ton, a ton of torpedo at 40 miles an hour. It go, yeah. you know, it could go quite a long way yeah. over a flat. And those golfers beach. wouldn't have known that it wasn't armed either. So uh, after after your period with the torpedo trials, and you, you've mentioned this a, a little while earlier, you're uh, appointed a nuclear propulsion specialist, and you're you're training at at Dunray. Um, what what was that 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 training like? I mean, I imagine it must be really intensive because of the implications of nuclear energy and nuclear reactors. Yes, we had bought into American technology, nuclear propulsion technology, and the American program had been created sort of almost single handedly by an admiral called Rickover, who was an absolute martinet. Uh, this was the early days of developing a, a nuclear reactor to go to sea in a submarine. One, the, the people were worried, obviously, about having a, a nuclear reactor accident with all the um, radioactivity ramifications, etc. So he set up the most rigid quality assurance, both of the machinery, the design, and the building, and the people. So. Uh, Rickover personally interviewed every single officer who was destined to serve in an American nuclear submarine in the early days, and, and the term Rickover rejects uh, crept in because um, he, he would just um, blackball someone if he didn't think he was up to standard. Now, the Brits inherited that, I'm glad to say. We, we, we um, had very, very tight quality assurance on, on the, the mechanical side, and uh, on the human side, yes, you were put through very, very rigorous training, which included, initial, well, after you'd done all the classroom work, included simulator training, which is like you know aircraft simulators. And uh, the, the nuclear propulsion simulator would include um, the five watchkeepers, three uh, of the troops operating the panels, uh, a nuclear chief of the watch, and the nuclear engineer officer of the watch, which is what I was training to be. And I found it terrifying, actually. I'm not, I mean, I wasn't a natural engineer. I joined the Navy, actually. I thought I might like to fly fast jets. But um, becoming an engineer was my 
only option really with my short sightedness of, of getting into the Navy. So I mean, I'm not really an, an actual engineer. I'm certainly not a hands-on person when it comes to pressing buttons and t- twiddling knobs. Uh, and uh, I, I was terrified of getting it wrong. And I think uh, the, the, the instructors who watched you through, um, you know, an invisible panel from behind, it's a bit like one of these police identity parades. They, they could watch how you're behaving and they could... Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They, they put faults in the system so that you suddenly had a an emergency in your hands and you try to deal with that. And just as you're dealing with that, they'd throw another emergency in. You know, they really could break you if they, if they tried. They'd all the tools, and no matter what you did, they were going to make you fail. Um, I suppose it's a bit like these modern computer games today. But I find that very, very hard. But I somehow managed to struggle through. Then you go to sea, and you've got to then qualify at sea on the real plant with the real submarine engineers and uh, the squadron engineer commander, who's the top engineer in the squadron, he will come and you do a live um, uh, Baiva Voce examination on board your submarine, which was Conqueror in my case. And I did all, I did all right there, actually. I think I did pretty well. But there was always this big brother is watching you type feeling in the nuclear world. And it's um, that haunted me really it was only when i finished my last patrol when which uh, we have a, had an hms revenge in which we had a major steam leak which could almost have um, put us out of the game forced us to surface and call for a tug when we were actually in a top secret missile launching position um, that would have been a national embarrassment of the first order um it was on i mean, managed to sort of um, i happened to be on watch and happened to be the senior engineer as well managed to save the day, so to speak, and we limped on for another nine weeks, I think it was, in, in a relatively crippled technical state. Uh, but at the end of that, I really felt I had mastered the nuclear plant. I felt I could play tunes on it. But really up until the last couple of patrols, I was always worried about whether I was competent enough, whether I would let the side down if, you know, if the proverbial nerd hit the fan. But so I was... I, I was I was quite relieved um, that I managed to do the right thing when when the emergency came. Yeah, and you you uh, uh, graphically dis- describe that that situation, which is a, a really interesting um, part of 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 the book. So you're, you're on Conqueror of Falkland Islands fame, and um, I, I was yeah. interested around, around the stethoscoping of the machinery. Ah, well, it comes. Back to a point I made earlier, Ian, about the importance of keeping your own submarine noise levels down, both to prevent them interfering with your own listening devices and, secondly, to prevent other submarines hearing you. Well, we were in in the Mediterranean. We'd actually gone from Faslane, dived, and uh, we're transiting to the far end of the Mediterranean, and I think we're about halfway there. And I happened to be on watch, 
and suddenly the old-fashioned World War II type um, hand-powered telephone went on. And I could tell it was a, a pretty excited caller. So I sort of picked it up and it was the captain. He said, what the hell's this bloody noise you're making? Stop that noise immediately. And I said, yes, sir, which noise? He said, the bloody noise. Go and find it. Well, I, mean, I was sitting in, on watch in the control room back in the engine room spaces. So I was surrounded by airborne noise. I had no idea what noise the captain was talking about. So we had a, a, a thing, a little electronic device, which was really like a doctor's stethoscope, except it was um, powered by um, electronics, and you could listen on a pair of earphones. So I set off round the engine room first, thinking, well, that's the most likely place to um, for us to be making a noise. Well, I'd never, uh, I'd, not, not very many people have uh, stuck a listening device onto a gearbox. Well, if you stick a listening device onto a submarine, nuclear submarine gearbox when she's doing about 30 miles an hour, I can tell you, it's a hell of a racket. It sounds like a washing machine full of um, you know, a, a bag of cutlery. Uh, and I thought, oh, shit, the gearbox is falling apart. Then I tried the clutch, and it was just the same. It was clattering and banging. And, oh, this is terrible. And I sort of worked my way down around all the machines and got to the tail end of the submarine, which is a dome-shaped um, bulkhead at the end of the sort of cigar tube. And I, to try and listen to the propeller, I, st I stuck the, um, the listening device against the actual submarine hull, and it sounded like a kid running a ruler down a radiator. It was just a brrrr noise like that. And I thought, oh, well, that's it, isn't it? It's, we've got something around the propeller. So I went back and reported to the captain that we had something around the propeller. He said, no, we have not. And I said, well, I'm afraid, sir, we have. Oh, we do not. We have, sir. But he went up to periscope depth, and he did uh, what we kind of call a duck's dive. You know, we, we, we stuck the bow down and stuck the tail out of the water, and you can just get an, an SSN's propeller visible, at least the top half of it visible above the surface. And sure enough, there was a wire wrapped around our propeller. So that won me a lot of credibility points for the captain. Fortunately, we were able to get rid of it quite easily, which I hadn't thought would be the case. But the, the propellers of um, the nuclear submarines are so brilliantly well designed that there's no room for um, wires wrapped around the propeller to actually get between the propeller itself and the, 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 the back end of the submarine, which can happen in you know things like merchant ships and yachts. And as I do sub-aqua, I've often gone down and... Uh, freed yacht propellers, which are fishing wire wrapped around them. All we had to do was go astern, um, and the turning the propeller astern literally unwound the, 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 the rope that was around the propeller, and then off we went, not making a noise anymore. Good, good. I just want to go back to uh, Polaris uh, that we were, to we were talking about earlier. How different was your engineering role on a... SSBN versus an SSN, or was it more or less the same to maintain the reactor and the propulsion? It was, in principle, more or less the same. The propulsion plants were more or less identical. There were some minor technical differences, but they were more or less the same. If a patrol is, uh, I think my longest one was about 100 days, um, you know, you're creeping around at four or five miles an hour for, um, you know, two and a half months or something, and not much changes. Well, one hope nothing changes. 
Whereas an SSN, you're zipping in and out of harbour, you're going up to full power state, you're going off the far end of the Mediterranean. Indeed, in the case of Falklands War Conqueror, I went all the way down to the Falklands and back, as did several other submarines, you know, at high speed, all the way, all the way dived. And then they rush around and do things like, um, you know, they were landing special forces in the Falklands, special forces in um, South Georgia. Uh, they were sitting off uh, Argentina and counting the aircraft leaving Argentina, you know, the fighter aircraft leaving Argentinian airports. So that the SSNs are very, very active uh, uh, submarines. And, and they also go on visits both to home ports and to foreign ports, at least the foreign ports, which are allowed to take nuclear submarines. So the reactor plant there is frequently being shut down, started up, um, going to high power states, going to low power states. Whereas in, in the SSBN, it's, it's all very pedestrian, except if you have an emergency. So if you have, say, a steam leak, as I had, it's a steam leak, a steam leak, regardless of what kind of submarine you're in, you're suddenly filling up with steam and it's all real time. So one had to be on one's toes all the time, even though nothing seemed to be happening. Yeah, because that, that last patrol appeared to be particularly challenging because you had a reactor alarm problem and then you had the steam leak, didn't you? Yes. They, well, the reactor, the reactor alarm is actually a steam leak in the reactor compartment, which fortunately was not what we call primary water, that is the cooling water for the reactor itself. The, our, our reactors are so well designed and the system so tight that it, I don't think we've ever had any any leak as such, and most of them sort of teardrops. But this was quite a big leak, and um, we knew that because of the, the amount of uh, water to keep pumping out of the reactor compartment bilge. Now, the reactor compartment's unmanned because of the radioactivity in, in it. Uh, so I, I felt we had to do something about this. We're on, I think, the first week of our patrol, and we had another nine weeks to go. So that involved very complicated nuclear procedures. We basically had to shut the reactor down at sea on patrol. Uh, now, uh, a, a nuclear-powered submarine, it's not like a diesel submarine, you, you don't have huge batteries to keep it going for lengthy periods. We Our battery was really just enough to allow us to shut down the reactor and start up again, which is probably about an hour in total, 20 minutes to shut down, let the radiation um, levels drop. You've got about 20 minutes to go into the reactor compartment, and then you've got to come out, and it takes 20 minutes to get the reactor started up again. So you've got to do quite a lot of things in that one hour. So we did, we did that and we found the problem straight away as soon as we opened the reactor compartment plug, which is, you know, about six inch thick steel lead lined, um, you know, radiation protection plug. Um, we, we were met with a wall of steam and uh, the steam was coming off one of the main steam stops. But this was what we call secondary steam. It was what the reactor was heating up, but it was the steam that we would be using to drive the, the engines, the steam turbines of the engines. We had to fix that, but it was going to take more than 20 minutes to do the repair. So we took about 36 hours to plan in great detail how we're going to handle this, and then we set about the procedures, and I think we ended up with something like seven or eight reactor shutdowns on patrol 
with people going into the reactor compartment and doing 20 minutes worth of work, then coming back out again. Uh, uh, and then we'd have to start the reactor up and uh, recharge the battery and then start all over again to go in for another 20 minutes. It took 36 hours to fix the problem. And to do it, we had to empty one of our two boilers because um, the, the steam was coming off the valve at the top of the boiler. So we couldn't, we couldn't work on the boiler till the boiler was empty. I mean, it's too difficult to explain on the, uh, to listeners on a podcast, but that meant it's about like, like having only one leg. So for this 36 hours, we're on one leg while we tried to repair the knee on the other leg. Uh, but we eventually achieved that and uh, mighty relieved. But I think the temperature sh- swings that had been involved with um, shutting down heating up, shutting down, heating up. It's all thermal transients, and, of course, metal expands and contracts, which is why with conventional steam systems you've got to warm them up for quite a long time before you actually try and do any useful work with them. And the next uh, day we had an actual steam leak down in the bowels of the machinery spaces, and that was a drain line from the valve we have been working on, which... It's not a line that is used at sea. It's only used in harbour for draining water out of the system. But nevertheless, it is integral with the steam system, and it had um, blown a gasket, as they say, and we were filling up with high-pressure steam, which we then had to deal with as an emergency, not as a planned engineering operation. And we, we managed to do the right things, and uh, but we ended up with no starboard boiler, no starboard steam range, so we're actually back in the one-legged situation. And for the next um, three or four weeks, we were limping around with just one boiler, one engine, one generator for electricity, which was a highly crippled state. We could still launch the missiles and we could still move the boat about, but we had no reserve of energy for anything like, say, a flood, where you need full power to you know, power yourself up to the surface. Um, you, you need... Energy, you need full power if you've a collision risk with another ship or something. So we're in a parlous state, but we're fully operational. But decided, I decided that we can't really go on like this. We really needed to get the starboard side activated again. And we could do that. We couldn't activate the starboard boiler because of this steam line that had broken, but we could actually join the port and starboard steam ranges up. But to do that, because they were, they were separated, we had to shut down the working range. So we'd actually shut down the, the one leg we were trying to walk on. So we ended up with no legs for a period of, I think it was about 120 minutes, while we opened up valves and, and passed steam into this dead starboard steam range. And that eventually did work, and we ended up with steam through both ranges, but coming off just one boiler. So it's still the same case. If something happened to the boiler, like contamination, uh, we'd lose the lot, but while we had the boiler, we had two generators and two engines, so it was a much healthier situation, and we survived like that till we got back off patrol. Yeah, yeah, no, that that was a really interesting uh, uh, piece of, piece of the book there, where where you describe how you're you're dealing with that. And um, am I right in saying that some of the issues that you had there were similar to the situation with that Soviet submarine K nineteen? They were similar. 
in a general sense, but not in a particular sense, they were similar in as much that they had a reactor compartment leak, as we did, but their leak was off the reactor. Ours was off the secondary steam system. So in our case, our, our man compartment is filling up with steam. So there's the risk of either we were poached alive uh, back aft or we might have to evacuate, which in itself would cripple the submarine because we'd have to um, shut down the reactor to evacuate. They had a different problem. They had to go into the reactor compartment to deal with a leak on the reactor itself. And they, because the K-19 was the Soviets' first attempt at a ballistic missile submarine, this was a, their response to the American Navy's um, USS George Washington, the first Polaris boat, they were... the, the the Communist Party was desperate to get this submarine on patrol to prove that they could do it. And they cut corners. Um, and and um, no one in the Soviet world could actually admit failure. So, uh, uh, so no one would tell the truth. Everyone was saying, yes, sir, three, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir, three bags full, sir. I mean, Chernobyl was the, the ultimate example of that. that. That's what was the process at play with K-19. So they didn't fit the reactor emergency cooling system, which was meant to have been fitted. And the submarine had numerous other technical problems and shouldn't really have ever gone on patrol, but she was told to go on patrol. And, of course, bear in mind that Soviet submarines carried political commissars, so they were there watching to make sure that everyone um, you know, did what the party had ordered. So they got on, on the on route to the east coast of America to do their first um, strategic patrol and they suffered a steam leak in the reactor compartment as we did, discovered that it was actually a, a leak off the reactor itself, knew they didn't have any emergency cooling fitted system fitted and so the, the captain ordered his engineers to go and rig a sort of an ad hoc um, method of cooling the reactor to prevent it melting down and giving us you know, a submarine version of Chernobyl but of course they, that meant they had to go put the engineers into a, a lethal radiation environment to, to carry out these repairs. And I think, they, and they did it, and those were very brave men. I, I don't know whether they were ignorant of the consequences, uh, ignorant perhaps of the severity of the radiation, but they, they did what they were ordered to do, and they did save the submarine. But five of them were dead within about five days from radiation sickness, and altogether 22 of their engineers died uh, within the next two years from radiation damage. So it was really a very different kind of problem to deal with, but it was a leak in the reactor compartment. But it does show the the dangers of um, any form of accident or problem on, on a submarine um, and how difficult it can be to deal with those scenarios, I guess. Yeah, I mean, when you're living with them all the time, you kind of treat them as, as every day, sort of, uh, you know, that, that, that's the way it is. But when you think about it, uh, as I was doing when I was writing the book after I'd retired, you know, I shocked myself really at how many hazards one was living with all the time. I mean, first of all, there's, you know, the hazard of a leak in the submarine sinking. There's the risk of fire. Now, a fire in the submarine is a desperate thing because it'll burn up all the oxygen in this small envelope of air very, very quickly. So uh, the crew will either be suffocated or, or die of carbon monoxide poisoning, or you've got to 
plug into the emergency breathing system, which allows you to breathe fresh air. But it also immobilizes you because you can't run around the boat dealing with the fire when you're plugged in to a breathing system. So that, that's a, a thing. The battery in, in a submarine, and this applies to nuclears as well, it gives off hydrogen when it's being charged. So you can have hydrogen expo- explosions. And that uh, is what I think sank the Argentinian submarine San Juan a couple of years ago. And it's what we think sank USS Scorpion, a nuclear submarine, way back in the early days. And uh, one of our own submarines had a battery explosion. Fortunately, it was on the surface, and um, she didn't sink, and she managed to get back into harbour. But So battery explosions is another one. Then you've got weapon explosions. The Kursk was sunk by a weapon explosion. Her own torpedoes um, blew up and blew the bows off the submarine. She went. She was a new Soviet submarine and went down with the loss of all hands. And then uh, the Consomolet, another new construction Soviet submarine, which went down just towards the end of the Cold War. That was a fire caused by an electrical short circuit. Then on top of that, you've got radiation sickness, radiation, uh, radioactivity hazards. You've got um, chemical hazards from you know, smoke. Uh, and they're just, and then there's collision, of course. Uh, and submarines are very, very vulnerable if, if, if they get involved in a collision. So there are an awful lot of uh, hazards which you're living with day and daily, but it's just part of like cleaning your teeth every night. We had a lot of problems with our um, heat exchangers furring up with the muscle spats. Uh, um, our heat exchangers, of course, are lots of tubes through which we pass the seawater through the tubes and the cooling water outside the tubes but the tubes are filling up with muscle things and blocking the flow of the water so we're losing the ability to cool our machinery and um, some uh, erudite chap in one of the design departments in the Ministry of Defence sent us a memorandum uh, giving us the uh, the mating life cycle of the lesser spotted Atlantic muscle and telling us that we had to keep all our sea inlets on the jetty side closed during the muscle mating season so that uh, they wouldn't come into the nice warm environment of a submarine heat exchanger to to, to, to carry out the mating and leave their eggs. See, th- this is the, the detail we like on this podcast. You know, the challenges of the Royal Navy was not necessarily the Soviet Navy, but the uh, the mating habits of the Atlantic muscle. Well, actually, in the same vein, I, I once, when I was a squadron officer, went down onto the jetty at the armament depot at Coolport in Loch Long to welcome back from patrol one of our Polaris submarines. And as she was, you know, coming up the lock, approaching us, I thought, something, she looks very odd. And she was very odd because she was completely white. And, uh, of course, the, the people on board the submarine didn't know they were completely white because they'd been dived. And uh, we didn't know what this what made her white. So we took some scrapings and sent the stuff off to the marine research laboratories. And it turned out it was a marine microorganism, which has a very fairly limited uh, habitat. And clearly, clearly a, this Polaris missile submarine had obviously keeping its patrol in, in the habitat of this marine microorganism. So um, we had to... Uh, reclassify this microorganism as top secret <laughs> um just one one more question for you eric i've, I've really en- enjoyed our chat um you you had margaret thatcher visit revenge and you had a, a little bit of an 
a conversation with her. Can you just tell us what she was like and how you found her? Well, yes. I mean, this was when she was leader of the opposition. I don't know what age she would have been then. I was in my... I would have been about 36, 37, I suppose. But uh, even in a a big submarine like a Polaris submarine, the the wardroom is still quite small. So she was there with her entourage, and we had all the ship's officers and squadron officers down to this VIP. So there's not a lot of room. And I find myself standing right next to her. I mean, I could have put my arms around her and danced with her. And uh, I've always been very interested in politics, and I've always been probably slightly left of centre, and actually I'm a card-carrying Liberal Democrat for what that's worth. So I'm kind of in the middle, uh, ranging somewhere between Stalin at some moments and Genghis Khan at others. But anyway, (laughs) I I, I said to Mrs Thatcher, how on earth are you ever going to defeat the trade unions? Because at that time, the trade unions under the James Callaghan government were running the country, uh, they were hugely powerful. They had something like 11 million members, I think, and they funded the Labour Party, which was in power. And you will remember we ended up with the winter of discontent, uh, which was actually what toppled Callaghan's government and Margaret Thatcher came into power. But anyway, I, I, I said to her, how, how will you ever be able to defeat the unions? And she just looked at me like a school teacher and, and said, if they want confrontation, by God, I'll confront them. And she said that later in much, um, you know, from the stage at a conference or something, I think. But it, it was quite amazing. She had absolutely no doubt that she would take these people on. And I just could not see how she could do it, given that the majority of the working population seemed to be members of trade unions. I mean, she reminded me slightly of my mother. And this was the woman who wanted to go on and be prime minister. It's just that kind of didn't didn't compute with my idea of a prime minister but my goodness she was certainly pretty powerful and we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes which will show as a link in your podcast app now you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons however i want to especially thank our politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 us dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Geoffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.